Hi, this is Michael Buffer, and welcome to the Box Hard Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mikey Garcia. Yo, it's your boy, the odd guy himself, Malik King Scott. Hi, I'm Charlie Edwards. This is Fast Eddie Chambers, and you're listening to the Box Hard Podcast with my main man, Joey Coastman. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 176 of the Box Hard Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Coastman. I'm joined as always by the infamous Mr. Ayaz Sumra. Ayaz, how are you doing? I'm good, Joey. Yourself? Very good, my friend. Very good. Right, let's dive straight into the review part of the show, as always. Uh, we're going to start at the York Hall, Bethnal Green, London, United Kingdom, the home of British boxing. Uh, this one was a MTK show, if I'm not mistaken. A few fights on the bill to mention. Dan Aziz moved to 7-0, a prospect. A TKO in round five against Stanislav Etchner. Now um, has a has a negative record, 11-12 and with one draw. Uh, we also got to see the main event for the vacant WBO European welterweight title. We saw Paddy Gallagher, 15 and 4, take on Freddie Kiwit, 14 and 2. I've seen Kiwit uh, have a good fight before where he really had to dig deep and grit it out. And he made a fan of me that night, so I kind of wanted him to get the win. But Paddy Gallagher was a big step up, really, because, you know, he's a lot better than what his record suggests. I think he was linked to fight. Um, wasn't Paddy Gallagher linked to fight someone and it never happened? Can't remember who it was now. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't Liam Williams, was it? I think I don't. I don't know where I got that one from. Was he? Or maybe Gary Corcoran? Maybe, maybe, maybe Gary Corcoran. Anyway, um, he ended up losing here. Paddy Gallagher. It was a majority decision in favour of Freddie Kiewit. Uh Gallagher was actually down in the fifth round and also in the eighth round. But over ten, Freddie Kiewit picked up the win. Like I say, majority decision. Now fifteen and two, and Paddy Gallagher fifteen and five. Uh, moving out now to Mexico, the Auditorio Municipal in Tijuana, Baja, California. Um, I'm not going to try and do my pronunciation like I did last week, which I actually felt was pretty good, by the way. Quite proud of that. Um, well, what do we have to mention over here? Hector Tanahara, young prospect that's been on the show before, a friend of the show. He fought for the vacant WBC United States lightweight title. He took on Ivan Delgado, 13-1 and with two draws. Hector Tanahara, 16-0 and undefeated. Um... Yeah, Tanahara actually got badly cut just above his eyebrow. It was an accidental headbutt. Uh, so, yeah, the fight got stopped, unfortunately, after just four rounds. And it went to the scorecards. And it ended up being a technical decision in favor of Tanahara. Now 17-0. Not the kind of wing you want, really, having to pick up a cut like that. I mean, it's nice to not have to do the rounds, as they say. You don't get paid for overtime, but it's even worse when you get a cut like that, and it's probably going to keep him out of the ring for a decent amount of time. He probably won't be able to have his next fight as soon as he would have planned to do so. So that can be very unfortunate. Uh, the main event over here, Brandon Rios, 35-4 and four with one draw in fight number 41 against Humberto Soto, who was actually having fight number 80. 68-9 and nine with two draws. It ended up being a unanimous decision over 12 rounds in favor of Mr. Soto. I believe he's 38 years of age now. He's been in so many, so many fights, um, way past his prime. Brandon Rios, even perhaps more past his prime. Uh, very poor performance, really, from Brandon Rios. It's a shame, but he seems like he's extremely one-dimensional at this part of his career. 
Um, I just don't think he's got it anymore. I don't think he's got the legs. I don't think he's really got the boxing brain. I'm not going to sit here and say he's always had a fantastic boxing brain, but I know that he did know how to avoid the odd shot here and there. I know that he had more in his locker than just coming forward and trying to bomb people away. You know, I mean, he could box a bit when he wanted to, but it just seems like he doesn't have that in him anymore. And for me, I think he should retire. He's been on the show a couple of times before. He is a friend of the show, but for me, he looked awful against Soto and he would have destroyed Soto perhaps five years back, something like that. But he seems to have lost something dramatically. And, you know, it's been a very rapid decline for him. Uh, Moving out now from that one, it's crazy because one thing that came to mind, the two cards that we got to see on TV um, last week, we got to see the Brandon Rios fight. And the main event, obviously, um, was between Rios and Soto. Two guys at the very end of their careers. That one was a main event fight. And one of the fighters, Rios, I think, needs to retire. So that was one fight that was shown on TV. And the other fight, of course, which we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, James Degau, again, he said it himself. If he loses, then he needs to retire. So we got to see two fights that were you know, bigged up as real big fights, but really, at least one of the fighters in each fight needed to retire should they have lost, and they did lose, so it's not brilliant TV. Um, Anyway, leaving Mexico behind, moving out to the O2 Arena in Greenwich, London, United Kingdom, I was there for that one, we got to see Anthony Kakachi move to 17-1, and a win against Alan Castillo, who's now 26-8, and Uh, that one was a points win over eight rounds. Andre Sterling, 9-0, and took on Ricky Summers, 15-1. and um, I said it on last week's show, Andre Sterling didn't really have any standout wins on his record, whereas Ricky Summers, I suppose, didn't really have any standout wins either. But he did lose to Frank Buglioni, and he gave him a good fight, and I said he's got a great jab. Well, anyway... I mean, the judges didn't didn't really do him any favours. He ended up dropping Sterling in the second round. And from that point onwards, I thought, wow, he's going to have it in the bag. But no, I wasn't really scoring the fight. And to be honest, I wasn't really watching the fight too much. But it seemed to be some decent action here and there. And Ricky Summers ended up losing unanimously over 10 rounds. So Andre Sterling moves to 10-0. and 0. He gets dropped in the second, gets up to win it on points on all three judges' scorecards. Credit to you, my friend. Can't really ask for much more education than that. Uh, Joe Joyce moved to 8-0. and He remains undefeated. He remains with a 100% knockout ratio. He took on the former WBC heavyweight world champion, Bermain Stavern, 25-4 and now with one draw. Bermain Stavern, obviously a man that's been um, incredibly inactive over recent years. A man that, you know, came in at his career heaviest for this fight here. Um, very underwhelming, didn't really seem like he came to win, despite, you know, the few moments where he would sit on the ropes and swing big shots and try and counter Joe, and to be fair, he did hit him with a couple, but Joe's chin held up, um, yeah, I mean, Bermain Stavernai is not really, not really impressive, to be honest, I think he's approaching his 40th birthday, I think that's probably about it for him as well, seems like everyone's going to be retiring after their fights last week. We've seen Joe Joyce, he's stepped up, he's, um, they're stepping him up really, very fast. The main Stevan, he's been knocked out by Deontay Wilder already. But it's a good step up, man, obviously, he's improved and knocked him out. I want to see I want to see what happens next with him, obviously, because now he's with Al Heyman, uh, with the PBC and now the I, and ITV, so we're going to see who he fights next. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really knocking him at all. I mean, Joe Joyce, obviously, I really appreciate the quick step-ups, but... Um... 
Last week, I, I, I purposely didn't give a prediction on this fight, and it was because we were trying to get Bermains to learn on the show that he was a complete nightmare to get hold of, and I'm hoping that we can get him before the show's up um, this week, so we'll see how things go. But yeah, if I'm being brutally honest, which I always am, I do like to tell it how it is. I don't like to be biased, and... Um, it was a very underwhelming performance from him. I mean, a lot of people w- were basically saying that Joe Joyce is going to knock him out between one and three. And I thought to myself, well, I mean, he's not a puncher like Wilder is, Joe Joyce. You know, he's not really a one-punch knockout artist, to be honest. And he's taken on Stavern, who I know he, he got bombed out in a round against Wilder, but he did go 12 with Wilder and take bombs along the way. He's fought the likes of Ariola, the type of fighter that tries to basically bum-rush you. And... His chin's always held up, so it was only that one occasion where he got banged out in a round where he's shown a bad chin. Aside from that, to be honest, he's been pretty decent with his chin, and, you know, people put it down to his to his bad shape. Well, when he came in even worse shape, I thought, well, this is really bad, and I could possibly see it ending early, but I wasn't overly surprised when it went... Uh, you know, as far as it did, it obviously went to the sixth round. That didn't surprise me too much, to be honest. Um, like I say, he always has had a decent chin aside from that one night. Um, going through the fight, though, the first round, it was a good round for Joe Joyce. He clearly won the round. Some beautiful, beautiful combinations, some lovely body shots. But Stavern was actually happy, like I say, to let Joyce come in and meet him on the ropes. And he'd exchange with him off those ropes. And Stavern did actually land some big shots, which were a bit worrying. And one shot seemed to actually stiffen Joe Joyce's uh, lead leg. But aside from that, I mean, it was a clear Joyce round on the work rate. The second round, Joyce batters Stavern, really. I mean, Stavern showed a good chin to stay on his feet. He was hurt and staggered multiple times. Uh, Joe Joyce was just too strong for him. Stavern's gas tank seemed empty already, and obviously that was down to his poor conditioning. In the third round, obviously we saw a knockdown there. It didn't really seem a real heavy shot. Um, it was a straight right hand to Stavern's temple. It was one of those ones that takes away your balance, so a 10-8 round. The pace did actually slow, though, after the knockdown from Joyce. Many was, were quite surprised that Stavern was able to get into round four, like I say. And, and in the fourth round, it was weird because Stavern seemed to get a bit of... Um, I don't know, it seemed like he'd, he'd woke him up perhaps being dropped in that third round because he seemed to be quite alert in that fourth round and he didn't really land much and he, and he didn't really throw much but Joyce also seemed to kind of coast that round. I mean, it was a clear Joyce round but it was very eventless and not not too sure if people were expecting a first round knockout uh, and, and trying to compare it to Wilder's one but of course you can't really outdo a first round knockout so I was hoping that, you know, after that point there in the fight... Joyce wouldn't get any any stick for, for not knocking him out in a round, because that was always going to be a real uphill task, doesn't matter who you are. But going into that fifth round, it was another Joyce round. I mean, it was very laboured. It was quite a boring round, to be honest, but a clear Joyce round. And the sixth and final round, Howard Foster did step in. I mean, Joyce was, was just hitting Stavern a bit too often. From where I was sitting, it didn't really initially look like the best stoppage ever, but fair enough. I mean, it was only going one way. Stavern didn't seem too upset really himself with the referee's decision. So Joyce, like I say, 8-0 and now with eight knockouts. Joyce didn't really look as good as everyone was hoping he'd look, but like I say, he also fought a fighter that nobody expects a 7-0 and fighter to even think of fighting. So fair play in my book to Joe Joyce. Many, many big nights for him ahead, as you said, Ayaz. Moving up the card once again, we got to see Lee Selby, 20. 26 and 2 moved to 27 and 2 a unanimous decision over 12 rounds against the American tough man Omar Douglas 19 and 2 now 19 and 3 
um, Douglas gave him a real fight. I mean, I was I was kind of thinking to myself, welcome to lightweight, Lee. Obviously, he's decided to move up the two weight classes rather than one. And um, that was always going to be quite challenging. Even against a guy like this, it was for the vacant IBF Intercontinental Lightweight title. So you'd imagine Lee Selby would get a world ranking pretty much straight away. Um, it was a head clash that resulted in Selby being cut above the left eye in the second round. And he also... Um, got cut above the right eye in the seventh. So it was very, very bloody from Lee's point of view. And the American was real quite dirty, like he'd really try and rub his glove against the cuts. He'd try and use his head when he could on the blind side of the referee. And Lee Selby, after the fights, decided to auction off his trunks that he wore, um, which are pretty much stained in blood. Um, but yeah, he's auctioning them off for a good cause, which he does time and time again. Lee Selby, one of the most generous men in British boxing. What did you think of Lee Selby, Ayaz? Um, it wasn't the most dominating performance. I mean, I expected him to win a, a lot wider than he did. Some people even believe that Douglas should have got the victory. Uh, I still thought Lee Selby won, obviously, it's because of the cut as well. But you've got to admit, he's moved up two weight classes. He's, he's ain't been in ring since that Josh Warrington loss. He's had a bit of ring rust. And moving up two weight classes as well, um, but I think uh, Lee Selby did box okay. Obviously, due to the cut, uh, obviously if he didn't get those cuts, I think he would have boxed much better. Obviously, because of the blood pouring down as well. But uh, he stepped up two weight classes. A lot of people are saying that he's finished. But I mean, at least Selby's a good fight. Obviously, he's accomplished everything. So I want to see him accomplish a, a world title lightweight, and then I think he should retire. But I mean, it's, it's, it, was a, it was his first match at lightweight, so I give him credit to that. Yeah, winning a world title at lightweight won't be an easy task. Um... Yeah, moving up the card for the final time on the main event here. James DeGaulle, 25-2 and two with one draw. The former IBF World Super Middleweight Champion took on Chris Eubank Jr., 27-2. and two. This one was for the vacant IBO World Super Middleweight title. Um, I mean, listen, this is going to be quite controversial. I'm just going to put it out there before people start shooting me down. Um, I actually did have... The fight scored 114-112 in favour of Chris Eubank Jr. So a lot of people were saying that the judges had it really, you know, too too tight. Well, I was in agreement with one of them. And I actually said it during the fight. Anyone who was sat near me can back it up. We was all talking about scorecards. And some people near me were, were saying, no, nah, that's crazy. That's crazy. About the midway point, I think it was. They were saying, that's crazy. How have you not got um, Eubank Jr. running away with it? And I said, do you know what? Say what you like about my scorecard, but at the end of the fight, I guarantee, as 99% of the time this is the case, my scorecard will match one of the judges, at least one of the judges' scorecards. That happens 99% of the time. So I just want to put that out there. I actually had it two rounds up to Eubank after 12. So, uh, you know, people that weren't happy with the scores, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the two judges that had it um, two rounds and three rounds were wrong, but I don't know. Uh, you know, just just I like to know that I'm not just crazy on my own, like uh, like a CJ Ross type card or like a Adelaide Bird type card. But anyway, the first round, I mean, it was a bit of a nothing round, really. There was not much telling landed by either guy. DeGaulle was coming forward, putting the pressure on Eubank, which I felt was probably the best thing to do. You know, he was he was making him fight backwards, a thing that Groves was able to master in the fight, um, holding the center of the ring, and DeGaulle was jabbing and holding. Um, 
It was a close round, but if I was pushed, I'd give it to De Gaulle. The second round, De Gaulle was 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 saved by the ropes from going down, so it was you know it was a knockdown, a ten eight round for Eubank. De Gaulle seemed to keep switching from Southport to Orthodox. I don't know why he was doing that, but I didn't think that was a clever thing to do. Nothing was working for him. He barely landed a shot, and it was an easy Eubank round. I was really surprised by that. Uh, the third round, a De Gaulle round for me. I mean, he was able to get the center of the ring towards the end of the round. It was another close one, in all honesty. Um, De Gaulle got off with maybe two nice shots, but nothing really phased Eubank. It was a close round again, no guy dominating the action thus far. The fourth round was arguably a Eubank round, but I actually gave it to De Gaulle just. And it was literally the kind of round where one or two punches would pretty much decide a round at that point in the fight. And I mean, Eubank threw De Gaulle into the ropes and landed a flurry whilst De Gaulle was pretty defenceless. And that's what probably evened up the round in the dying stages. But like I say, because it was a bit of an illegal move, um, you know, he was half through the ropes and then and then De Gaulle, uh, sorry, uh, Eubank started unloading. I didn't really score all those shots. Uh, in the fifth round, Eubank barely landed a glove in the first half of the round. De Gaulle didn't do much in terms of landing punches, but his jabs were effective, and he would hold when Eubank got close. And Eubank did get a little combo off in the dying stages, but I'm not quite sure it was enough to win the round. It was a very hard round to score, and I actually gave it a 10-10. Um, so that's how I had it after five. Going into the sixth round, I gave that one to Eubank. It was another close round, but he did land a nice power punch once again. One or two punches would literally swing around to either guy. In the seventh, it was a big round for Eubank. He hit the gal way too often. It was the first clear round of the fight, in my opinion. In the eighth round, it was another Eubank round. He was starting to build momentum. It was a clear round for him. It felt like the gal perhaps had hit that bit in the fight where he likes to take his foot off the gas. And I was quite surprised, actually, to not see Eubank put more pressure on the gal and try and, you know, up the pace like we've seen many, many times. It was probably the most... Um, game plan um, following version of Chris Eubank Jr. It was the most kind of relaxed version we've ever seen. Usually he'd go crazy, and he probably would have got the stoppage if he did, but it was the most kind of um, focused version of Eubank that we've seen. So it's interesting how this this uh, this fighter-trainer or trainer-fighter relationship is, is panning out. Uh, only one fight, not too much to judge, really. In the ninth round, it was a clear Eubank round. He was matching Gaulle's output and doing more. In the tenth round, the pair exchanged left hooks, and Eubank got there first, and he shook Gaulle to his boots. I mean, Gaulle was down shortly after that when Eubank kind of swarmed him. It was a bit of a messy knockdown. In the eleventh round, obviously, Eubank had a point, took off. He Body slammed the gal. I mean, it must have knocked the air out of him. It was a good round for Eubank before the slam, though. So, again, I'm a guy that if there's a point took off, I usually score it 10-8. Well, 99% of the time, I score it 10-8 to the other guy. But some guys like to say, well, he still lost the round. So, it's a 9-9 and all that kind of business there. Gets a little bit confusing. Depends what kind of system you follow. But, um, yeah, the 12th round was a questionable um, round from where I was sitting. I mean, it looked it looked like Eubank got a knockdown, but I'm not quite sure what happened. I haven't seen a replay, and without the knockdown, it was probably a De Gaulle round, if I'm being honest. So, uh, yeah, that one was a bit up and down. But after everything, I had it 1-14-1-12, giving that 12th round to De Gaulle. Um, obviously, the 10-10 round, which, which could have gone either way, could have made it a bit clearer, but that was how I saw it. And I was delighted to hear one of the judges had it the exact same, so I didn't feel like Billy No Mates. And the other judge had it uh, 1-15-1-12, um, and the other judge had it very wide. Some 
you know, some people agree that it was as wide as that. I'm not quite sure it was as wide as that. But, um, yeah, I asked, what did it look like from the TV point of view? I didn't hear anything that George Groves said. I didn't hear any of the post-fight interviews or anything at all. So please update me what you thought of the fight and perhaps what got said that could be looked at as quite controversial. Obviously, um, uh, you a great win for you, Chris Eubank Jr., obviously beating James DeGale, a, f- a former two-time world champion at Super Middleweight. Um, to me, after watching on TV, I mean, seeing James DeGale, he did not look like the James DeGale that we knew. Obviously, when we when I when watching him on TV, when he fought Badu Jack, brilliant performance. Um, I think since the Badu Jack fight, fight, he has not looked the same. Obviously, the two uh, the first loss to um, Caleb Truax, and then he won he, he won against Caleb Truax on a very close fight. I mean, he he's had he's had a, yeah he's had a very tough couple of fights he's had in in his uh, whilst when he was boxing. Um, what I'd like to see him do, do now, I think he's accomplished everything in boxing and I think that it's time for him to hang up the gloves, obviously. I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, obviously, I, I said I said last week that Chris Eubank Jr. will win on points, which I which I believe he did, uh, which he did. But, I mean, I like uh, James Dicker. He's done a lot and uh, I wish him all the best. Yeah, I mean, you say there, Ayers, that we knew that Chris Eubank Jr. was going to win and, you know, myself and you both thought that, but the listeners, of course, went with DeGaulle on points. That didn't happen. I went with Eubank with a late stoppage. That didn't happen. And you went with Eubank on points, Ayers, which I believe was quite a unexpected outcome in terms of what the bookmakers thought and what the general consensus was. People thought if it went to points, it would be a DeGaulle win, and if it ended in the distance, it would be Eubank by stoppage, but a good prediction from yourself there, Ayaz. Um We also all went with Selby to win on points, which of course happened, so two points game for you, Ayaz. Two out of two, 100%, and myself and the listeners only getting one, so a 50% prediction rate for us. Um, did I hear that Degel perhaps thought he did enough to win, or am I making that up? Yes, he did thought he won the fight, but obviously we uh, we knew that Chris Eubank Jr. won the fight. Chris Eubank Jr. was way ahead, in my opinion, and I thought Chris Eubank Jr. obviously was beating him. Obviously, the two knockdowns as well. Uh, obviously, even though they got the one point not, uh, one point deducted, he still won the fight, in my opinion. Yeah, very clearly. Um, and yeah, I agree. I as I think the. You know, I don't want to take too much away from Chris Eubank Jr., but I don't really think it was a it was a case of a brilliant Eubank Jr. I actually just think it was a very poor James DeGale. And, you know, it's not harsh to say he should retire because he's the man that actually said those words himself. He was the guy that said, this is the retirement fight. If I can't win, then I may as well retire. So he said it, and um, I haven't seen any announcement, but I'm guessing he probably will retire. I don't really see any other fights out there for him. I mean, if George Groves hadn't retired, I think the rematch could have been there for him, even if he lost this fight here. Um, Caleb Truax's third fight, if Caleb Truax beats Peter Quillen, oh, I don't know about that. Um, but yeah, other than that, he hasn't really got anywhere to go. But he has had a fantastic career. Um, you know, he reigned um, on two occasions, a two-time IBF super middleweight world champion. He had many, many good fights, many, many good performances. He went out on the road um, various times. And, you know, he had some big fights back over here. And, you know, he was the first British man to win an Olympic gold, then go into the pros and win a world title. He did it before Anthony Joshua. He's the first ever to do it. So that is quite an accomplishment right there. Um, So, yeah, credit to him. He's a friend of the show. If he does decide to call it a day, then fair play to him. He's been a great fighter. I've been at many of his fights. So, uh, yeah, it's probably the right thing to do, to be honest. And uh, sad that he didn't go out on a win, especially over Eubank, but it is what it is. 
Um, I feel like there was maybe one thing that I should have said actually beforehand, but I'm just going to say it now. When we were sat there ringside, and we were well, not ringside. I wasn't actually sat ringside. When we were sat there in the in the venue at the O2, we were we were thinking about the. And I brought this point up. I said, when was the last time James DeGal? Because people were saying, oh, he's going to beat Eubank Jr. Even people like Carl Frampton and I think it was Jamie Moore were were tweeting that DeGal to win on points is printing money. I was thinking, what the hell? That's that's just not happening. I couldn't see that happening. Hence why I went with Eubank to win by stoppage. But um, I, I, I asked a question to the guys around me and I said, when was the last time Eubank, sorry, DeGal won a fight convincingly? And you've got to go back in time. And I'm talking about against a good fighter. I mean, he beat in his last fight Fidel Munoz. He knocked him out in three rounds on an undercard in America. That doesn't count. Before that, he beat Truax in the rematch. It wasn't very convincing, though. The, the fight before that, he fought Truax and he lost, and it was pretty dominant, one-sided, in favour of Truax that night. And if you put the two fights together, the 24 rounds that they went, Truax won more of those rounds than, than James DeGaulle did. The fight before that, the Badu Jack fight, many people felt he lost. I felt it was a you know it was a draw, but anyway, a real tough fight. That's not a win. And then he took on Rogelio Porky Medina. A lot of people felt that Medina probably did enough. I didn't think that uh, that he did enough, but... You know, it was a close-fought fight. It was a hard battle, um, especially when you look at what David Benavidez did to Porky Medina. The fight before that, Lucian Butte. Again, not a completely dominant fight from uh, from James DeGaulle. Andre Durrell was the fight before that one. Remember, he, he was able to, 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 to drop Durrell twice in the second round. But aside from that, he took his foot off the gas massively in the mid-rounds and let Durrell get right back into it. It wasn't dominant. And then the fight before that, which was 2014 in November, he knocked out Marco Antonio Piraban, who wasn't a fantastic fighter, but he did it in three rounds. That was probably the best win, the last dominant win. Before he's going in there against someone like Eubank Jr., who if you decide to take a few rounds off, (laughs) you're shooting yourself in the foot. I just couldn't see it, and it wasn't to be. But anyway, let's leave that fight card there. Let's move out now to the final fight card. Well, there's two, actually, to mention before we wrap up the review part of the show. Let's start in at the Minneapolis Armory in Minnesota, USA. Uh, this one was the Anthony Durrell card. Anthony Durrell now 33-1 and with one draw. It was for the vacant WBC World Super Middleweight title against Avni Yildirim, 21-1. and um, This fight is pretty pretty poor, really. I mean, I said it. I said that neither guy really deserves to become a WBC World Champion. Callum Smith would be looking at those guys licking his lips. Well, I've heard that David Benavidez will actually be the first man to get a crack at the winner, which of course ended up being Darrell. It was a 10th round technical decision. Darrell got cut and then they had to stop the fight. I think it was a, um, it was, I mean, a lot of people were moaning. I haven't even seen the cut, but um, yeah, I think it was, it was quite a small cut. And then Darrell made a meal out of it, apparently, which doesn't surprise anyone. And then the fight got stopped. So they didn't actually go to 12 rounds. But from what I've heard, it was extremely competitive. And you've just got to look at what, Chris Eubank Jr. did to yield the rim. Do you know what I mean? So, unbelievably, the IBO world title currently holds more value than the WBC world title in the super middleweight division. I mean, it's a joke. So, yeah, Anthony Durrell, the new WBC super middleweight world champion, he was cut, like I say, above the eye in the seventh round from a head clash and about halted on the advice of a ringside doctor when the injury worsened. Um... 
Nothing else really to mention on that bill. The final one to mention happened at the center stage in Charlotte, North Carolina, USA. It was a return to the ring for Dominic Wade, who's now 19 and well, he's actually now 20 and 1. Um, it was a TKO in the fifth round against Jose Obando, who is a journeyman, to be honest, now 16 and 26 with one draw. But Dominic Wade, um, who spent about three years out the ring after losing to Golovkin when he had a, a middleweight world title defense back in, um, I think it was 2015, I think it was, maybe 2015, maybe 2016, actually. Well, anyway, he's been out of the ring almost three years, and um, he's had two fights in about three weeks, so seems like he's looking to get back active again, and so he should. He wasn't a bad fighter. That one loss came to Golovkin. No shame in that one. Uh, but that's about it for the review part of the show. Just before we wrap up part one, the last thing to do, of course, is to welcome our very first guest. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the British super lightweight champion, the man that has beaten everybody that he's shared a ring with in the pro ranks. It is, of course, Mr. Robbie Davies Jr. Robbie, welcome back on the show. <laughs> You're all right. Nice one for having me. Hey, it's always great to have you on, Robbie. So we last spoke in April of last year. It's been quite a while. It was just after you avenged the Sirawatka defeat. Obviously, you went on to fight Glenn Foote. You beat him wide over 12 rounds. But it wasn't your typical one-sided beatdown, despite it was it was quite wide, um, in my opinion. But the rounds were close. The fight was tight. And every piece of ring attire, like I say, from the gloves to the boots to the shorts, even the referee's shirt were covered in blood. Talk us through the fight back in October, Robbie. <laughs> Yeah, it was a it was a tough fight. Um, it was one of them fights where even though I won, I won well on the card. I had to work hard in every single round because Glenn was putting the pressure on, becoming aggressive as the rounds went on. So just had to stay on the A game throughout the whole fight. And then in one of the earlier rounds, I took a cut, um, which opened up badly. And then uh, Glenn got a cut, and then there was. My nose went, and then there was just blood everywhere, and there was a bloodbath, and then it showed even more at the end of the fight when you seen the referee share. I'm sure he donated it to a charity, like baffled it or something. The ref. <laughs> yeah, I think he did. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a good fight to be involved in. It was a good step up in my career to move forward onto the next stage now. And once again, I mean, Glenn Foote's a tough customer. He's a hard man. Where would you place that win amongst your other wins in terms of lessons in the ring? Did you experience a lot in that fight that you perhaps wouldn't normally get the chance to in another fight? Or was it a bit too much of a war for your liking and perhaps therefore possibly it's a negative rather than a positive? Where would you place it? Uh, I wouldn't say it was my hardest fight, but um, I definitely learned a few things in the actual fight like him. Um... Glenn was like golden, like goading me before the fight, trying to get into my head, and then even in the fight was talking to me and trying to put me off my game and things like that. That was all new stuff for me, stuff I've never experienced before. Amateur as a professional, so that was all new to me. And then I've never really had to dig it out for such such a long uh, period with such a bad cut either. So obviously that was a big thing for me to learn and take into my arsenal as well. But there were a few things in the fight. Like, we expected Glenn to be more physically strong, um, like punch harder and things like that, but we were wrong, and we didn't know that until the night. It was more, he was fast off the mark, and, like, speed, like, in, in like from a short distance, that seemed to be his um, his best weapon. Like, when we were inside, and he was trying to push me back, and, like, you could feel him, like, proper forcing it where I was just relaxed and I didn't really feel he was that strong and I didn't really feel he punched that hard. But it's put me in good stead, like, going forward now because it's been a new experience for me, especially as a professional. 
Yeah, for sure. And talking of that next step onto the next one, you'll defend your British title, but at the same time challenge for the EBU European title when you take on Joe Hughes, March the 30th in Liverpool. Now, I mean, I have to say, I'm a fan of Joe. I think he's achieved some amazing things by winning the proper version of the European title, despite having that physical disability. Do you know much about the man as a fighter? Yeah, um, I've knew Joe from the amateurs. Like we don't, we don't know each know each other personally, but I've always knew of him. Um, I always knew about the the one arm thing and things like that. But when you, if you ever, I don't really watch my opponents fights, but my coach was saying like he does throw his right hand every now and again, so it's not like he doesn't use it. But his his main weapon is obviously his left, and he's he's worked from with that from a young age, so he can. It's like it's not a disability to him, so I I don't look at it as one. It's, I'm just looking at it like he's a, he's a well skilled boxer and he does everything well. So I just know I've got to be on the A game to beat him because I know it's going to be um, it's going to be times when we've got to tough it out and there's going to be times when it becomes a tactical battle as well. And a win here would, like I say, mean another title and obviously a more important title in all fairness. Um, would you then return to fighting at British level after that, um, Robbie, or, or would you try and push on from the European? Uh, well, I've said in past interviews, like earlier in my career, I was like, I was kind of taking taking charge of my own career and doing everything the way I wanted to do it. And um, I kind of stagnated a bit and I was stop, start, stop, start. I was trying to find my way on TV shows and things like that, even regardless of having a, a big following anyway. Um, it was still, it was a, it was hard for me to like manoeuvre my way forward all the time. So I said like when I signed with Matchroom, like whoever they put in front of me, I'll fight. Of course I'd want to move forward. If it was ideally like I wanted to be Joe, I'd want to push forward for either an eliminated or a world title or of some sort or or a, a big name opponent, maybe not for a world title, but an opponent of like being at world level or someone the public know. I'd want to be like that. Me personally, if there was like a, a young kid coming through from fighting a British eliminator and he's 10 and 0 with two KOs and no one really knows him, like that, that just wouldn't get me up for it. Um, I'd rather, I'd rather vacate the British if I have to fight someone like that. But, as of right now, um, my full focus is on Joe. I don't want to look past him because yeah, I know it's going to be a tough fight on March the 30th, but obviously come through this one, which I, I expect to, I'll, um, I'll just leave it as a ready and manager Neil, and I'm sure they'll come up with the right plan for me. And the fight, as we say, will take place in Liverpool. You've got such a fan base there. I mean, you shared a, a little crazy story about how you've actually had to personally drive around yourself to buy tickets off of other boxers fighting on the show simply to be able to provide those tickets to your supporters. I mean, that's such a cool thing. Yeah, it's it, it, literally because I started, I didn't have the, the glamours of being a top amateur and going straight into the big shows. I started on the smaller shows and my fan base built up of people actually seeing me on a non-TV shows or word of mouth people coming to see me and then I was always driving around dropping tickets off then and now I've got to the higher stage and I'm on the big stage and I feel like it's unfair for me to say to them there's no tickets left after they've been following me for all these years and the amount of tickets that I was given wasn't enough for like because I, I am I do I do well with the tickets I wouldn't say I'm a mad ticket seller selling thousands but I do I do good with them do you know what I mean or some people will come and watch me that don't even know me. But So them ones don't have to get them off me, do you know what I mean? They'll just be coming to watch me, but they don't know me personally. 
but the ones that do know me personally, it was like a bit of a rush when I only got like so many hundred tickets and then they were still trying to get rid of them. But I knew, I know like basically every fighter on the show. So what I was doing was I was messaging them and saying like, you're having trouble getting rid of any of these tickets. I don't, like you can keep the commission. I don't even care about it. I literally only want your tickets to give to another one of my fans. Do you know what I mean? So I was flying around. Just, it was just, the only thing it took me was a bit of my time away. There was nothing else, but that's the least I can do for, for all the, um, the support they give me over the years. So I don't actually mind it at all. Yeah, that's a, that's a great thing, man. True class there. And coming down to the last couple of questions, really, Robbie, I know that um, you know you really do know your boxing. There are a lot of rumours at the minute regarding the World Boxing Super Series possibly collapsing, even though they've decided to announce a couple of dates. People still quite unsure. Um, one fight that we hope that we'll get to see as part of the tournament would be Josh Taylor against Regis Progre. Who wins that one, in your opinion? I think it's a it's a, it's a good matchup because also Progre is like a, a heavy a, he's like slow footed and heavy handed but he slips and times his shots well where his tail is the more type that he'll tactically pick it off and if he's winning that way he'll just stay in he'll stay in that rhythm and he'll, he'll force you to fall short and things like that and then he'll catch it on fast counters and. Um, heavy shots when you least expect it being a tall rangy fighter both southpaws as well so that's not that's not something you normally see at top level you never normally see two sports going at each other like pretty rare but I think that sort of fight will be basically who gets it right on the night um, I think if Josh um, if Josh comes to his semi-final which will be a big acid test um, I think he'll be he'll be more ready for pro grade then where I expect Progre to just stop relic within six rounds or something like that because I don't think he's very dedicated to the sport. He's just a naturally heavy-handed kid, but I think when he goes up against top-level opponents like Progre, I think he'll get stopped. And obviously you're with Matram. Uh, without looking too far ahead, the obvious fight, should you move on to world level after the Hughes fight, would be Maurice Hooker. Um, do you secretly have your sights set on a fight with him? Yeah, of course. I'm always in, um, I'm always under the same stable as me, so I keep an eye on him. And I have a few. I have looked at a few of his fights. I've, I've seen fights. I've thought he's lost, and he's been given a draw and things like that. And but I think he's he's got better in his last few fights. But even though he's looked better in his last few fights, I still don't think the opponents he's beat are, are very good. They've just like they've got people that are like 21 and 0, but the record is like against people that have won 10, lost 10 and things like that. Like, they haven't beat any... the 21 and 0 and never fought for a title. And he's getting them, bashing them up and it's making, like, your everyday boxing fans that don't really look into too much detail. They're just saying, oh, he's just knocked out a 21 and 0 kid and things like that. Like, even that Alex Saucedo, who he beat in his last fight where what he was just dropped and then got up and beat him. Saucedo had, like, 20 fights against no ones. And then like had two or three fights against average opponents and got a world title shot against them because he had a massive following. Um, and even though it was a life and death fight for him and he ends up coming out on top, it was if you if you look look at it in more detail, Alex Osido wasn't that good anyway. So he's he'd definitely be on my radar if I if I got the opportunity to fight him. 
and usually I like to end an interview on a prediction for an upcoming fight, but you're not really that type of guy, Robbie, so instead of the prediction, I just really wanted to give you a chance to send out like a thank you or a message to anybody that may be listening that's part of your your, your ever-growing fan base. Yeah, just um, anyone that's listening in on this, come down on a March 30th, it's looking to be a packed house, and support us and get them always grateful, and it's going to be a good journey to the top. Very well said, my man. Listen, Robbie, I really want to thank you for your time. Best of luck for March 30th, and God willing, the next time we catch up, you'll be the new EBU European champion. That's the plan. Thank you. Okay, now it's time for part two on this week's show. This part, of course, belongs to Ayaz. Ayaz, take it away with the news. What you got? The WBC have announced that Wilder v Fury 2 will, will not happen next. Instead, both men will have one warm-up fight in the meantime and will hopefully meet at the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, bad news really for boxing fans. I can only, well, I can't help but kind of blame Bob Arum. I think he wants Tyson Fury to grow his name, have one more fight in the interim to try and, you know, expand a little bit more in terms of his fan base in the US and make the rematch even bigger. But I don't know, it's not, I don't know, it's not really great news for boxing fans. It's a bit of a shame, really. You know, I don't really know. I voiced my opinions on this the other week and... uh I don't really see the point of an interim fight, but, you know, I'm not the guy that makes the choices and makes the decisions, so it is what it is. Vasil Lomachenko will face Anthony Crawler in Los Angeles. Yeah, April the 12th, that one, which is a Friday night. Um, it's official. It's a fight that, of course, everyone's been talking about for a while. Um, a lot of people, you know, taking to Twitter and having a go at Anthony Crawler. can't really see the point behind that. I mean, I've, I've always been um, a bit confused when people do that kind of stuff, but... Whatever, I mean, each to their own. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty much his mandatory. He's somehow, I'm not quite sure, but he's somehow managed to get himself in that position and crawler. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a fight that, that that's going to happen. But, yeah, I, I don't give crawler no chance in hell. I think to beat Lomachenko, you've got to be a crazy puncher, someone like a Comey, someone like... Um, trying to think of another lightweight that can really bang, maybe someone like a Mikey Garcia, but yeah, Anthony Crawler's not a power puncher or anything like that, so it's a complete, I mean, it's, he's probably going to retire after this fight, because I don't know how much fight he's going to have left in him, but he's a gutsy guy, and to be honest, after boxing, he needs to write a book or have a movie made about him, because his life and what he's had to go through has just been unbelievable. It's just incredible to think that he had a world title fight lined up. Then he got hit over the head with a paving slab, had to pull out. You know, I think he was told he'll never walk again or something crazy like that. I know they like to throw that one in at every point when when, when, uh, when these these tragic things happen. But yeah, he got back fit. He fought for a world title. He had the draw, which was such a joke because he certainly won the fight. Then they got the rematch. Then he stopped the guy. Then he went on and stopped Barroso, who stopped um, Kevin Mitchell. And then, of course, he went on to fight Linares. And, you know, it was what it was. But, yeah, good fighter. A real, real, real inspiration. Lovely guy. But, um, yeah, he's just not beating Lomachenko. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's about it for that one, Ayers. Matram have announced a card on April 26 featuring Rangvasa vs Strada, Doheny vs Roman, and undercard featuring Scott Quaid, Jesse Vargas, and more on DAZN. Yeah, I mean, we knew about the Rungvasai-Estrada fight happening. Um, Roman against Doheny. We knew that fight was looking to get made. There's some names on the undercard there. Um, so, yeah, it's great to have a date finally set for it all. And it will be a good card there. Um, you know, a couple of unifications and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what boxing fan can knock that? It's, it's certainly going to be a good card.
The World Boxing Super Chief have announced the stair semi-final schedule on April 27th, Regis Progress based Relic and Anita Denevis Tete. On March 18th in Glasgow is Taylor Visbranchik and Inouye Rodriguez and on June the 15th in Riga in Latvia it's Marius Breders v Glowacki and Dortokos v Tavid. Some cracking, cracking, cracking nights of boxing to look forward to there. Um... It is weird that they're going to... I mean, obviously, Bradis is from Latvia, so they're going to Riga, which you'd imagine is not really a you know, a place that's going to, I don't know, bring in a fantastic gate. I'm not quite sure if if you know he sells out arenas. I'm not sure, but it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant fight bill to bring to Riga. Uh, it's a fantastic fight, fight card to bring to Glasgow. I mean, the Scottish boxing fans are licking their lips. They're, they're going to be fighting literally for tickets for that one. And... As you said, on, on April the 27th, Pro Graham Relic and Donair and Tete, um, you know, that's that's going to be a good one. No venue confirmed for that one, to my understanding, just yet. All we know is it's going to be somewhere in America. Um, you know, it was always going to be quite quite uh, difficult because I spoke to somebody involved with the World Boxing Super Series and they were saying that there was kind of confusion as to where to put Nonito Donaire against Tete because Tete's not really got a big fan base, you know, he's from South Africa, Donaire not many people like to come out to watch him so it was a bit of a shame because it's a massive, massive fight by the way, that one and where'd you put it? I mean it's not really an undercard fight It's it's really kind of like a main event I feel like you know, the two guys deserve more than having an undercard fight. I think it's, you know, it's a unification. But anyway, they put it on the same bill as Pro Grey vs Relic and turned it into one big show. So great news for boxing fans. They're doubling up on the, you know, they're, they're doubling up now, basically, showing two semifinals per night of boxing. So there's six semifinal fights to mention there. We are hearing that Baron Chick has pulled out once again. And I've heard that, um, you know, they're looking at replacements, but I don't know how true that is. I want to see if that's confirmed before I start going in on that one, because they're talking about Ricky Burns replacing Baranchik. I mean, could you imagine Josh Taylor and Ricky Burns, for God's sake, please don't let that fight go ahead. Um, but yeah, that's that's about it. Is that it for the news, Ayers? And that's it for the news. Okay, right, let's go through the preview part of the show now. Not really too much to go over. We're going to start tomorrow, Friday the 1st of March, in Australia um, at the Melbourne Pavilion in Flemington, Victoria. We get to see Jun Long Zhang, a, a Southpaw heavyweight, undefeated, 19-0 with 19 knockouts. He was a decent amateur, and he's been knocking everyone out. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him. The only bad thing is, is that he still hasn't got an opponent. It's a TBA, um, and it's a 10-round fight, so it's not going to be a great um, a great opponent, and it's probably going to be 20-0 with 20 knockouts. He's about, I think he's about 30 Five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, maybe like late thirties, something like that. I'd like to see him get a big fight before he ends up retiring, but um, not quite sure that they're really caring about big fights with the types of guys this guy is fighting. But he may be the best thing since sliced bread. He may be absolutely awful. Um, moving out to Germany, this is a fight where I'm actually looking forward to this one. Some people probably don't agree with me, but for me, this weekend, there's some real interesting fights, and this one here is very interesting. Uh, Topping the bill at the Maritim Hotel in Saxon-Anhalt. It's going to be on German TV. It's not even a Sauerland show. It's 
It's SES Sports Events. I've never heard of them. But anyway, top of the bill, Ajit Kabayel, 18-0. You might remember him. He beat Derek Chisora on points in Monaco. He puts his EBU European heavyweight title on the line against Andrei Rudenko, 32-3. Um, his three losses came to Huey Fury on points. It came to Lucas Brown on points in a fight where I felt that uh, Rodenko probably did enough to win and his other loss came to Povetkin on points so he's never been stopped, a very good fighter and he's a lot more experienced than Caballel. Caballel, you know, he's a decent young heavyweight, doesn't really have much amateur pedigree, I think he was a kickboxer or something, so that's a great fight there by the way, very risky, and on the undercard Tom Schwartz, the heavyweight prospect I think he's only about 22, 23 maybe 21 years of age um, he's got 23 wins 23-0 and 0 for the WBO Intercontinental Heavyweight title no opponent just yet, that's a 10 rounder there moving out now to the East of England Arena in Peterborough, Cambridgeshire United Kingdom, this one is going to get shown on Sky and Eddie Hearn Matchroom Show, um Again, a couple of decent little fights uh, on this one. Um, one in particular I'm really looking forward to. Let's start with the undercard, though. We get to see Kez Ashfak move uh, to hopefully 5-0. He's 4-0. It's a six-rounder against Fadili Majiha, who has a record of 23-11 and with four draws. Seems like Kez Ashfak's, you know, really... Um, kind of stalled his whole career like he he turned pro with with uh was it haymaker ringstar then he never really had a fight for ages it seems like all the other olympians are pushing on really fast and he's almost the forgotten one um yeah i mean to think he fought in rio in 2016 we're now in 2019 he's only had four fights this will be his fifth fight that's a six rounder there anyway anthony sims jr He's fighting in Peterborough. Uh, his record's 17-0. and 0. He takes on Matteo Damian Varon, an Argentinian fighter. We've seen him uh, once or twice before. 28-21 and 21 with three draws. That's a 10-rounder there. Could be interesting, but probably not. Uh, also on that bill, this is the fight that I am looking forward to. Richard Riakpour, 8-0. He fights for the vacant WBA Intercontinental Cruiserweight title against Tommy McCarthy, 13-1. That's a great fight. That's a 10-rounder there. Also on the bill for the vacant Commonwealth featherweight title, Lee Wood, 20-1, takes on Abraham Ozi Bonsu, who has a record of 13-3 with one draw. And the main event... Jordan Gill, 22-0, and takes on Emmanuel Dominguez, 24-7. and um, Of his seven losses, he's only been stopped once. And to be honest, it was to Emmanuel Navarrete, the guy that beat Isaac Dogbay. So quite a tough fighter, this guy. Um, obviously, Jordan Gill's not a massive puncher anyway. 22 wins, only six by knockout. Uh, I think he's... He's actually supposed to hit a lot harder than his record suggests. But anyway, I'd expect this to go the distance, but it could be quite a good fight. Um, moving out now to the York Hall in Bethnal Green, London, United Kingdom. Another fight here, or two fights here actually, that I want to give a little shout out to. Um, let's start with Mo Garib, 3-1. His one loss came to this this journeyman called Dean Evans. Um, he actually got got beat on points. He got dropped. I think it was in the first round and the third round of a four rounder. So he simply could not, you know, get the win over four rounds unless he knocked the guy out pretty much or or was able to drop him three times. Um, so yeah, he got up off the canvas. He lost, but he really, really tells me that he's learnt a lot from it. We spoke a lot via direct message on Twitter. He's a real bright young guy, and we were exchanging messages back and forth. And I said, "This is terrible. You know, you've lost to this guy. You know, people are going to jump off the bandwagon." But of course, the good thing is you get to see who are the real ones around you. It's better to have a loss early on in your career rather than later on. You know, when when things are 
are too old really to change you know you can't really teach an old dog new tricks but at this stage in your career it's all about trials and tribulations and if you can get through those and move to the next level then it's a healthy thing and you know what he's decided to do? He's decided to get straight back in there with Dean Evans. So I respect that massively. Um, Dean Evans has had one fight in the meantime, and it was a loss. I think he lost on points. So he gets back in with Mogarib. Mogarib gets a chance here to avenge that loss because um, a record of 3-1 and one doesn't look good. He doesn't need me to say that. But, uh, yeah, he, he takes on Dean Evans, 8-27 and 27 with two draws. All the credit to Mogarib. This one's a six-rounder. So there's a bit more time for Mo Grib to work his boxing. He just cannot afford to get dropped again, though. And all the very best to him. I mean, to lose to a journeyman and then want to get straight back in immediately, not even have a fight in the other direction. He could have avoided him and gone the other route. Credit to Mo Grib. And the main event here, Miles Shinquin, 15-4, and four, fights for the English light heavyweight title against Kirk Garvey, 11-2. and two. That's a 10-round fight there at York Hall, Bethnal Green, London. Like I say, uh, a real good a good night of boxing there. And coming down to the final two bills to mention, this one's happening at the Trump Turnberry. The Trump Turnberry in Scotland, United Kingdom. One fight to mention, friend of the show, former WBA heavyweight world champion, Lucas Brown, 27-1. and He's in a six-rounder against the toughest heavyweight journeyman in history, Camille Sokolowski, 6-14 and with two draws. A lot of people not really happy about that one because I tell you what, Sokolowski's upset more than one guy and he can really fight. He's relentless and if you tire against him, you are in major trouble. So Lucas Brown cannot afford to overlook him, otherwise his fight against Dave Allen can really end up in some serious jeopardy. Moving out now to the final bill to mention at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York, USA. Two fights really to mention over here another fight which like I say could be really interesting very intriguing Luis Ortiz 30 and 1 takes on Christian Hammer Obviously, Christian Hammer, we know for the fight against Tyson Fury, where Tyson Fury was able to stop him. Uh, and then, of course, he, he took on David Price. I think he got dropped against Price, and then he uh, he got up and knocked Price out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a decent fighter, to be honest. His, his loss, his one loss since the Tyson Fury fight in 2015 was against Povetkin on points. Um, you know, he's a, he's a good fighter. He's got a few wins along the way. He's coming off a win, actually, in, in, uh, in December over, a, I think it's a Polish or German heavyweight prospect. I think he was 19-0, and 0, something like that. He knocked him out anyway. So uh, this is a good fight. I mean, I think Luis Ortiz will have too much for Hammer, but still a sturdy test. And the main event here... For the WBA World Super Welterweight title, Brian Castano, 15-0, bit of a prospect still. He takes on Erislandi Lara, former world champion, maybe two or three times, I think two times. Uh, Lara, obviously, 25-3 and with two draws. So uh, if Castano is the real deal, he'll be able to beat Lara. But it's, it's just different with Lara, isn't it? Because he was probably winning that herd fight before he got overwhelmed in the end. And... Uh, you know, he's a good fighter, but it's, again, a very tough question. How much has he got left in the tank? He's been in a lot of big fights, and it seems to, you know, to kind of go against him when he takes on these fighters, and it's a real kind of close fight. I mean, the the fight against Canelo, a lot of people felt he won. Like I say, he was, he was winning probably that herd fight, and then it all went wrong for him. And here he takes on a, a very young guy, a guy that's extremely driven and wants to remain a world champion, Castano, even, it's, even if it's the regular belt so all the credit to Castano it's a tough tough defense here but uh should be a good one we'll have to wait and see how that one unfolds on show
showtime. Hopefully I can get a stream somewhere. But that's about it for the preview part of the show. Just before we wrap up the show entirely, the last thing to do is to welcome our second and final guest. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the double Olympic champion, the undefeated two-weight, five-belt world champion, Clarissa Shields. Clarissa, welcome back on the show. Thanks, Joey. So, Clarissa, we last spoke back in November. We didn't just speak. We we, we also sung. How have things been since then? Um, I've been good. I've had two fights since then. Uh, still undefeated, and now I'm on my way to be uh, undefeated champion in just a few weeks now. And I do want to just have a word on each of those fights. I want to start uh, with Hannah Rankin. Obviously, we spoke just before that fight. I think just a few days before that fight. You went on to completely shut her out. You didn't even lose a round. You actually, in the last round, seemed close to perhaps putting her down. Talk us through that win for you. She's a tough girl. Um, you know, Hannah Rankin is very skilled and uh, well, very tough. And I had already told everybody that. And I was like, you know, she's tough, but... When it comes to being a world champion, I was like, she needs a little more time, you know, to develop because she she's very tough. But it's like when you get to that level, everybody's tough. And I just was like, you know, she's not going to be able to win unless, you know, she get lucky and maybe land a big shot and put me out, which, you know, not ever going to happen. So um, I just went out there and I kind of toyed with her a little bit. I used my jab. I jumped in the air on, threw some jabs on her. I threw some good combinations. One thing I did not do was punch her to the body that fight, but um, that's really all I did. I just used my slickness and my head movement, and that's how I was able to win the fight, really. I really didn't have um, – it was a couple of times I almost knocked her out, but then the round went in because of our two minutes. So, you know, that's just what it was. But, I mean, just like I had told everybody, she was she was game and she was tough. Yeah, she certainly was, and I agree. You did look a little bit frustrated every time the bell went. Um, only three weeks later, you were back in, in action, like you say, December the 8th against Femke Hermans, who once again won the fight on points without losing a single round. What was that like, Clarissa, not only to win, but also to be a part of a big HBO card, which not only showed your fight, but also showed Cecilia Brackhouse's fight? Um, it was a showcase night for women's boxing back in December there. Um, you know, HBO was, I was so, you know, um, happy that they picked me to be, uh, on their last HBO card. It meant, it meant everything to me. It was just like, wow, they're really starting to get behind the women and they look at me as a trailblazer. Now I fought on almost every network except for ESPN and Premier Boxing Champion. You know, with me in my career, I was like, if, if it was just my goal just to, you know, fight on HBO, Showtime the zone and being retired, I can retire right now if that was just my goal in Boston. So I was pretty hot to get that out of the way. And, you know, to be able to stay active while, you know, Christina Hammer was kind of, uh, you know, going through her medical issue. But the fight with Femke, she was very awkward. Um, she didn't have a lot of power. She was very awkward. It's like different getting ready for a fighter that's awkward because they don't make any boxing moves. They just kind of just try to land when they can and run in and it's different trying to calculate that than it is, you know, against the boxers who actually, um, you know, had like a certain way that they fight. Like, you know, she switched back and forth, southpaw to orthodox. And, you know, she was just very awkward. But once again, I did use my combination, made sure I didn't get head butted, uh, tried to I, – I, I threw a lot of body shots on her because I wanted to make up for not throwing any body shots in the fight against Hannah Rankin. 
And, um, you know, I did exactly that, and I almost knocked her out a couple times, too. But then it really came in the 10th round when I almost got her out of there. But, you know, um, the bell rung once again. Once I hit her and she was kind of out of there, I jumped right on her, and the bell rang to to end the round. So. Unlucky, unlucky. But on to the next one. This is a fight that you've wanted for a long, long time now. It's for all the belts. Um, you're free and Christina Hammer's WBO title. Winner takes all. April 13th on Showtime at the Boardwalk Hall in New Jersey. The same venue where Arturo Gatti fought Mickey Ward in, I believe, their second fight. But this venue has got some real history. I mean, your promoter Dimitri Salita boxed there. Evander Holyfield boxed there a few times. Even Floyd Mayweather boxed there. It's got some real history, this venue. Yeah, you know, I, I've never boxed in Atlantic City, New Jersey, but just the surrounding areas, you know, Philly, New York, Brooklyn, like, that's my area. I have so many friends and fans and supporters there, so I'm just happy to even be given this opportunity, you know, to even be able to say, like, add my name to this historic event. You know, like, everybody that fought at the Boardwalk Hall now, I'm fighting at the Boardwalk Hall. It just shows that I could do what the men can do, and then it just added more, more and more history to my to my legacy. Um, well, all the belts on the line, it's so huge for women boxing. And then when I fight on a Friday night on Showtime, it's Saturday. They're doing all access on it, all access on women. <laughs> it kind of it, 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 it kind of amazes me though, to be honest, because it's just like, are y'all serious? <laughs> Like, I really did. You know, when I think about getting a match made in women's boxing, I like to think big, but I don't like to disappoint myself. So I didn't even think about all access. Um, I just thought about the fight itself. And then when I thought about the fight, I thought about all, you know, four belts. Now they're adding the ring belt to this. And, oh, my, they just, I don't know. They just giving us, you know, giving us the opportunity for everything. And then I feel like it's, you know, I feel like I worked so hard to get to this point in my career that, you know, it's, it's, it's deserved. It's deserved. And I feel like uh, I'm just going to go out there and perform and try to make, you know, women's lives and be higher than it's ever been. You know, you mentioned there about the two episodes of the All Access, uh, which which is going to happen in the build-up to the fight. What will viewers get to see, Clarissa? Obviously, having a camera follow you around for a few days, will we get to see a side of you that perhaps not, not many people know so well? Yeah, of course. I think people, when they see me fight, they're like, she's so ferocious, and you know, which I am. And I think people, when they, when they see that, they're like, yo, she's so, you know, so mean and everything. And they kind of think like that I'm not a, a woman. Like I go, like I get my hair done. I like to get my feet done. I women fighters train just as hard. Like I'm doing a training camp in Colorado Springs. You're not going to see a lot of my family in the all access. But you will see, like, maybe some phone calls from them. And you will see, um, you know, how how close I am with some of my boxing brothers, like Shakur Stevenson and my uh, Coach K. Like, how we look at each other like we're all just family. And just how, just how close and how much fun we have, like, even while we're in camp. But I think the main thing for me is just showing them, like, hard work. Like, I'm one of those women that – you know, boxing is my only job, and it's been my only job for 13 years. So I, you know, train two to three times a day. I spar with the men. I do just as hard or even harder workouts. I'm one of those women that run a lot. Like, I do a lot of road work. 
And so they're going to see that when they think that, oh, women's boxing is not really filled with a lot of competition. So Clarissa doesn't have to work hard. When it's like, are y'all fucking crazy? I work my ass off <laughs> every fight, no matter if I'm getting there with a girl who has eight losses compared to one loss compared to zero losses. I get in there and I train so hard and, you know, I'm constantly hard on myself trying to improve and be a better fighter. So they're going to see all that stuff in camp, and then they're really going to respect, like, dang, like, she, you know, we didn't know that she was like that because everybody just thinks that I'm, like, that I'm a talent. No, I'm a talent that works hard. Like, uh, uh, talent can be beaten by hard work, and I don't want to be beat, so I put everything on the line when I'm in camp. I just train very, very hard and focused. Yeah, very well said. And just to, just as you mentioned there, the Ring Magazine belt being on the line for the first time in women's boxing history, that's that's an amazing thing there. Um, just another another piece of, uh, of silverware to bring home. Um, two questions in one here that I want to ask you. Do you identify Christina Hammer as your toughest fight of your career thus far? And is she actually the toughest fight out there, period, of all the fights that could happen um, in all the weight classes? Classes that your body can actually get down to? Um, there's always someone to show up and someone else to fight. There's never, I think right now, as far as in my division, she is ranked. You know, she's been the reigning champion for eight years. So that's who, uh, you know, if, if, if I didn't fight her, you know, or if we didn't fight each other, it would always be, oh, who's really the best and why didn't they fight? So this is one of those fights that I definitely always wanted to get out the way and uh, wanted to prove my dominance over her just so I could make my claim at 160 and not have anybody question with another fighter. So this fight is the toughest fight right now. plan is to, to, to see if I can go down to 154 and hopefully get a super fight with Cecilia Brockett and me and her fight at that weight class. Not, um, for me, it's not really about the belts at 54. Of course, I want to be a three-time division champion, but it's more about the fight with Cecilia Brockett. I just want to, once again, like, uh, if we can meet there, just fight for the pound pound spot because, you know, I don't, I, I understand why they have her ranked number one pound for pound because she's the only woman that's undisputed. But it's like, if if I was to fight her and I was to beat her, I would be pound for pound. I think that it's kind of like time to give the younger one coming up a chance to stake their claims instead of having to, you know, keep having to have the critics of boxing uh, you know, questioning our greatness and questioning women's boxing and questioning like the people that fight each other in women's boxing. Like we need to have the have the best, fight the best, and that is what I'm you know looking forward to. If I was, if if I was you know if I was naturally a 154 pounder, you know I would have tried to make my way down to 47 or to 40 just to face Katie Taylor. But you know the world isn't like that, and I'm not that small. You know so. I'm just like, I just want to make the best fight happen, no matter if I have to go up or down in weight. You know, wherever I have to go to make the fight, um, that's where I want to go. And the lowest I can go is 54. So I just want to see if I can get the fight with Cecilia Brockett, become pound for pound, and then, you know, fight anybody that's coming up. You know, with these girls, when they see these opportunities that are coming up, they're going to want to turn pro. And when they turn pro, you're going to have some girls. Now, now Carissa Shields is not going to be the youngest girl with a belt you're going to have some young hungry lions coming up and we're all going to have to fight them and face them and you know and stake our claims against them so there always will be someone new coming up the way that women's boxing is going right now 
and Clarissa without I don't really want it to go in a different direction this this interview but in in if you can give me one uh just a one word answer to this question who do you see as the tougher fight um Cecilia Baracus at 154 or this fight that you've got coming up at 160 against Hammer which which is the tougher fight Hammer or Brackhouse? I have to say I guess it's probably it's probably Christina Hammer okay the tougher fight out of the I Either either fighter is, uh, or, or both fighters are, are great fighters. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I refer to Dimitri Salita as your promoter, but you, he actually also promotes um, C- Christina Hammer, right? Yeah, it's not, yeah, he promotes Christina Hammer, but she's been advised by Tom Loughlin. Yeah. Now, so it's, yeah, he's still her promoter. It just um, she felt more comfortable having somebody else in the mix and. But like, you know, they were just Team Shield, which I understand why she put that way. She's not from here, and um, you know, they've been putting everything behind because that's my promoter, you know. But um, he's been just as, you know, just as uh, genuine and nice to her as he has been to me. So, you know, she just she just felt that way. So that's why they're um, doing that. She's been advised by Tom Foster. So I mean, it's no big uh, deal. I I believe. And coming down to the last couple of questions, um, you mentioned about, you know, you've got a closeness with Shakur Stevenson. He's a great guy, a great fighter. He's been on the show a couple of times. Um, another couple of guys that you get along with very well, um, the Durrell brothers. I know that you're, you're you're surely really pleased with with Anthony's win on the weekend to pick up the WBC super middleweight title. I'm sure you're over the moon for him. Yeah, um, well, I think he earned that win. You know, it wasn't as far about the pitch. Uh, the guy had butted up, the cut got open, and I believe it was an elbow somewhere through in there. Whatever the case may be, but he didn't stop the fight the, the doctor did. And I believe that at the stoppage, he was up on a scorecard. So, you know, that's just, that's just that. You know, he hated the fight had to end up in controversy. You know, I had called him after, and he was like, you know, nobody wants to win a, win a, win a title that way, and he wished he could have, you know, continued fighting. But the cut was extremely bad. He had to get stitches, you know, and stuff like that so you know when 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 you know the other side you can kind of you know to me when I first seen the cut I was like he's coming out this round and you know he tried to put up his game plan and tried to you know keep him off but you know the guy only had one way of fighting and that was just coming straight forward you know and those big shots he was coming so that's kind of what happened and finally Clarissa um, I'm really intrigued to see what you say to this one. I know you've not always been Tyson Fury's biggest fan, but surely, Clarissa, after after you know after taking on Deontay Wilder and everything that he did for mental health and homeless people surrounding that fight, not to mention his performance in the ring uh, to get up from those two big knockdowns, surely he's won you over slightly. Surely you like him even just a bit now. Yeah, 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 Tyson Fury.
it was just crazy to see him come back with all of that. And then on top of that, lose weight and get in great shape and everything to come back and face one of the biggest monsters at heavyweight and, you know, put on a performance like that. I thought, you know, he did a really uh, good job. It was a good fight. And I was a fan before then. I'm just not – I mean, I just wasn't going to root against Deontay Wilder. <laughs> and I'm still not. I'm still not going to root against Deontay Wilder. Um, I still have a hard decision to make between when uh, Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua fight, but um, I have a lot of time to think about that because I don't know when they're going to fight, so I have to think about it yet. But uh, it's always hard to root against your home, you know, to root against the homeland. Yeah, I can understand that. I'm just pleased that you're 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 finally a a, a Tyson Fury uh, fan. Finally, um, and just before I let you go, Clarissa, is is anything else going on at all? It's literally the last thing I've got to ask you. Anything else that you want to say at all to our listeners before we let you go? Um, just tell everybody to tune in to the fight. Um, thank you guys for helping keeping this fight alive. Uh, you know, all my UK fans and everybody, come fly on over. You know, to see this great performance. Uh, everybody in the U.S., come on to Atlanta, New Jersey. Make sure y'all get showtime. And uh, I just see everybody April 13th. Very well said. Clarissa, I'd like to thank you for your time this week. I really appreciate you coming on the show once again. Best of luck for April 13th, and we'll catch up sometime after. Thank you. Okay, and this wraps up episode 176 of the Box Hard Podcast. I've been your host, Joey Coastman. I as Sumra has been I as Sumra. I'd like to apologize, actually, for some of the very poor audio quality that has occurred this week. I mean, I really do hope that you were all able to get through it. I as has had some real problems with his microphone. I'd like to thank our two guests on this week's show, the British super lightweight champion, Robbie Davies Jr., and the two-time Olympic champion and undefeated two-weight world star, Clarissa. The Shields. Uh, the prediction league currently stands at myself on 86 points, Ayers on 82 points, and you, the listeners, at the back on 81. At one stage, you, the listeners, were running away with it. Remember, it is the first to 100. There's no predictions this week, but next week there will be. So look out for the polls posted on Twitter on Monday. One piece of news that has happened. James DeGau has now decided to retire from boxing whilst we've been recording the show. We pretty much said our bit on him earlier, but once again, we wish Chunky all the very best in his retirement. Thank you all for listening to this week's podcast. You are the greatest listeners in the land. We'll be back next week with another big show as per usual. Until then, take care.